Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. Acceptance has always been extremely important to me. And yet, I always seem to do everything possible to rebel against it. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis. And each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears and let's get into this. Come on. Good people. Welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast, episode number 44. 44? That's right. Congratulations. Season two. Thank you. Thank you. Today, I am interviewing Michelle Miller. Hey, Michelle. Hello. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing fantastic. Super happy to have Michelle. Just to give you a quick background, she's a a Howard University alumnus, represent HBCUs. HU. Go go MIAC. I'm a a Morgan State alumni myself. Hey, that's okay. Morgan State. That's right. They're real. That's right. Morgan State keeps it great. Got her master's at the University of New Orleans in uh, urban studies. Is married to the former mayor of New Orleans and current president of Urban League. National Urban League, my National friend. Urban League, Mark Haydel Morial. Just a quick, a quick fact. Her father, Dr. Uh, Ross Miller, attended uh, to uh, Robert Kennedy after he was shot. He's a, he's a surgeon and a civic leader in, in, uh, Cali- in California. Michelle is a anchor uh, host on uh, CBS uh, This Morning, CBS Sunday Morning, and CBS Evening News since 2003. I'm really happy to have her. I met Michelle at an <laughs> awards dinner for a friend of mine. Actually, uh, our first guest, Anthony Watkins, was awards dinner for him. You got and, an uh, award too, didn't you? No, no, I didn't you get an didn't? award. No, no, I was just with him. I was his support. I was his support. I that. swear, I was his I date. Actually, sit. I was his date that <laughs> night. Actually, <laughs> I was his date. I could have sworn I saw you with some accolade in hand. But, oh, okay. Um, maybe that's for the me. future. Maybe that's maybe you'll you'll MC my future. Yes, because <laughs> I speak the truth. <laughs> that's right. I you, try to. You do. You do, and the truth will set you free. There it is. If you let it. All right. So, <laughs> but you know, she hosted the event. She was charismatic. She was funny. But she was smart and clearly she was serious and she was, you know, had some level of success. I, really? wanted, I wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Some integrity. There was something integral about you just as a person. Thank so you. I, I really wanted to have you on. And I'm, I'm glad she said yes. I didn't know. I just said, hey, I got a show. Would you like to come on and talk? And she said yes. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you for asking me. Absolutely. That uh, doesn't happen often. There was some synergy. A booking happens on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I do that, too. Yeah. I'll meet someone. You know, at a gathering, an event. Yeah. And I just, I like put the, I put the question to them right then and there because that's my opportunity. That's it. Yeah. And there's a face to face meeting and that's when you feel people. Yes. Correct. And you get a sense. Now, oftentimes, depending on who I ask, <laughs> not so, not so happy. I get a not so happy response. I get a no, but you know what? Hey, nothing beats a failure, but a try. Listen. Gotta shoot your shot. 
There it is. That's what I say. Shoot, shoot it. Shoot it. <laughs> shoot it. <laughs> shoot it. For people that are listening for the first time, um, the premise of the show is essentially that we ignore truth. People typically we do. ignore it. Really? Yes. How so? I mean, it's obvious that we're ignoring a lot of truths out yes. in the sort of general sphere yes. of our daily living. Yes. But from a personal level, what truths are you talking about? I'm talking about the truth that things like I'm a self-sabotager, right? People people won't, oh my won't, won't accept that about that themselves. That is so right? true. That's a big one. I'm that guilty. I'm actually excellent at X, right? Whatever X is. Why do we do that? I don't know, but I will tell you this, that the premise of the show is that if you accept the truth, success comes. And so that's why I bring people on and talk about the truth. So, Michelle. Yes. We can start either personal or professional. Okay. You tell me which one do you want to go with. I don't with. care. Okay, so let's do personal. In your personal life, yes. what was the truth that you ignored that once you accepted that success started to come? I don't want to give you like some mantra someone else's. You know, take your time. What, no, what, no, no, whatever, because whatever, whatever speaks you know, to that's you. That's really maybe I haven't come there yet. I think you have. Why don't you talk? I'll, I'll help guide you. Okay, why please. You, I need guidance. Why don't you talk about the trip that you took right after college when you went to Europe, oh North Africa? God. Talk about that. Talk about the truth, and not to give you this specific situation, but you talked about how you woke up in the middle of the night. That was a moment. Of oh truth. my gosh! I told you that at dinner. You didn't in my research. Yeah, I found it. Oh wow! Oh my god. He's a he's a he's he really kind of is. a journalist he a little bit a little bit. No, well, this was okay. So so I did write for my college <laughs> newspaper. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Okay, and, and just to continue to help okay. guide you, you're married, right? Yes. So in relationships, there are always truths that we come to, and okay. that that friction that is relationships, okay. right? Friction is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So you you and you have children. You're a mother. So there's yes. all these areas in your personal life. I mean, that you can you can pull from. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm wondering how deep I want to get. But yeah, take let's, your time. Take your time. And we're editing, so you, know, yes, you don't have no, to no, rush. No, 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 I won't. I never do. But, um, <laughs> okay. but no, I, what's, I'll give you the whole backstory of sure. how I started my sojourn. So, okay, this is, we're going to have a full circle moment. Okay, let's bring it back. So my mother, my grandmother and my father went to Howard University and my dad told me, you know, and I'm a Cali girl and he's yeah. like, I got into UCLA, I got into Berkeley and he's like, oh, that's lovely, but you will do one year, your first year at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I'd sort of been groomed for it and I knew that, okay, I'm going to do my one year, but you know, he knew I'd be hooked. Yeah. You're right. Not, you're not leaving. Yeah. And I get there and I... So, you know, I am sort of a wild child. I'm a Cali girl. I'm very <laughs> unfiltered, was the, even more so back then. And when I say wild, I mean just sort of nature bent on being who I am in all of my fabulosity. Wild hair, fabulosity. no makeup, <laughs> nature girl, crunchy Cali girl. Sure. And so I, you know, I never really fit into a box. And I was always afraid of true conformity. Mm. And yet acceptance has always been sort of important to me. Sort of my truth in that is that, you know, acceptance has always been extremely important to me. And yet I always seem to do everything possible to rebel against it. <laughs> okay, you talk about self-sabotage, right? <laughs> so off I go to Howard. 
And so like thinking back. So one of the things that my grandmother did when she was at Howard, she was there from 1912 to 1916. She in 1913 pledged a sorority. Black woman went to college in 1912. And I remember you telling the story. She traveled by herself yes. to Howard from, where did she come from? Dallas, from Texas. From Dallas, Texas. From Dallas, Texas. By herself. Right. But her, but her father, this is, but here's another crazy connection. Her father was a Pullman porter. So in thinking about how he felt, I'm putting my daughter on this train and she's going to go to Washington, or maybe he rode with her part of the way, that he knew that he had people he could depend on to care after his daughter. Imagine, you know, black folks traveling at that particular point in time. In particular, you had the Green Book you had, which was like sort of the the white pages to allow people access to where they could stay in the segregated South and be safe. I'm sure there were porters on board that train and cooks on that train who knew that was, you know, Edward Burson's daughter. And they were going to make sure she was going to be okay all the way to Washington, D.C. She traveled from Texas through Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, North, South Carolina, Virginia to Washington. And when she got there, she made a great group. of. She was very popular, from what I understand. And (laughs) boys and girls alike. I mean, you know, she was like the belle of the ball. And... She decided to pledge a sorority. Now, at the time, there was only Alpha Kappa Alpha. But her friends, like she had two. So for her friends, apparently there was some division, right? And a group of her friends were going to start another organization called Delta Delta Sigma Sigma Theta. Theta. So they said, B, you can stay with that organization or you can come and start Delta Sigma Theta with us. And you know what she made her decision on? (laughs) The friends that she had that were starting that organization. So she was a sophomore. But the friends who were going to start the organization were seniors. And I guess she wasn't as close to those, the underclassmen, as she was the underclassmen in the AKAs. She based her decision, because they were both excellent, you know, women, Women, on the fact that more of her girls were in AKA. So I just thought that was a hilarious story. And it was a story I hadn't, I did not learn until after I was made honorary National Alpha Kappa Alpha member in 2000. But keep in mind, I was in, I was at Howard in, and I, I, I attempted to pledge Howard in 1987. I was never demure. I guess I was always sort of, I hit things like I, it was like I had to cut through in a way. And, and I thought it was being brave, but, but in, in many respects, it was, it was being disrespectful. You know what I mean? It's like, it was like I would charge forward and I would self sabotage myself in ways to ensure that, you know, I, I presume I'm you you gave me that I'm sitting here and I'm learning something right here and now. But so it stems back to that. So so I remember that when they turned me down, I got really sick that night. Literally, I'd gone to an event, I'd eaten something, I got sick. Wendy Raquel Robinson, my roommate, shout out to her. So I have food poisoning. She said, you know what? You can always pledge next year. And I said this, and, and this is why I believe speaking things out loud to the universe gets you what you ask for. I said, you know, I'm going to Africa next year. I'm doing my 
my semester abroad, I said, I, I won't have time to do that. I said, we'll have to decide whether or not I become a national honoree. And I said, because I, I won't be able to make it while I'm at Howard. And I, I, I remember saying, I'll just, I guess I'll just have to, if I'm going to be an AKA, I'll just have to be a national honoree. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> just like that. Like, it was such a random thing to say, yeah. you know, but it was obvious I wanted that. And so it was like, th- because that's the ultimate acceptance. So, so that's one thing. And then, and, and so I, I went to Africa and one of the great lessons of my, my time in Kenya and Tanzania was that I found out I was an American. First time really outside of the country, outside of the Caribbean or Mexico, but really sort of you land in the motherland. And if you have any form of education and you have this sort of Afrocentric lens that you're looking at Africa through, you go there and you're like, I'm home. And everyone there sort of it was me, two other black women and 12. It was actually 11 white women and one white male. We were all there, but we were all lumped together when we were walking down the street. They called us Wazungu, which means foreigner. <laughs> Interesting. And they called us that for about Two months, or maybe it was a month, for about a month. And, it, you know, through the process Did that I went through. Did it have a negative connotation? Kind of like, yeah. Okay. It's kind of like, yeah, you get, if someone yells at you, foreigner down the street. <laughs> I mean, that's happening now. That's happening yes, right now. That's true. But back to my Your point. personal truth. My personal truth <laughs> is that I'm an American. And when they called us that for about a month, And we were in the process of sort of learning all about where we were and the people there. And I don't know, there must be some unpacking or unpeeling of the onion because you are exposing your truth, right? Or your lack thereof, your ignorance to what is, Mm -hmm. right? And... And when you peel away, you sort of peel off some of that, what, if you want to call it edge or like who you are as a being. So people see you as you are. People walking down the street wouldn't call us that anymore. There was a real sort of like people would smile at us in a different way. We must have literally, when we got off the plane, walked around like Americans, like, you know, like we must have had a certain way we walked and a certain way we talked to people. I'm, I'm being really quite literal. There was such an edge to us. And when that edge sort of evaporated, then it was like, OK, you're one of us now. But it was it was really interesting for me because I say, you know what? I am I am a descendant of this great place, but I really must be clear on who I am. I'm an American. And, you know, I need to embrace that, you know, and I'm an American of African descent. And I'm very proud of that. But I I am who I am. So I I can imagine people today who were being told they're not American, who were born here like I was, being told that they aren't. And they're like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm really clear on this. (laughs) I'm clear on who I am. In terms of your personal truth, it goes back to acceptance, right? Right. You started off talking about how you were this wild child. It was just, you know, anti to everything. Yeah. And it sounds like your personal truth was you realizing that, you know, you can be different, but not contrary. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's almost like exactly. you, you, it's almost like you were just being different to, to, be, to different. be different. 
but you can also do that and not, you know, uh, ruffle any feathers or be destructive or be disrespectful as you right. use. And in this scenario you're talking about when you went to this country, they weren't accepting you either, you right. know, for because you because you were different. So, right. But to the story you initially asked me about, I was in Egypt and I was having a conversation with a, a Muslim man who had married a German woman and she had taken their child to Germany and he would never know if he would see their child again. And we were having this political debate about, you know, things that were ha- happening in Egypt and the Middle East. At that point in time, the, the touchstone was Beirut, Lebanon, and there was concern there. And we were having this discussion about peace in the Middle East between Israel and some of its neighboring countries. And I, I, I mentioned the word liberty. And he said to me, he said, ah, yes, he said, but with freedom comes great responsibility. Americans don't understand that you have freedom to do things. But at what point do you say, this is going too far? You have the right to say pretty much anything through your words. You have the right to freedom of expression, freedom of the press. You have the right to speak your mind. But at what point do you cross a line from an ethical or a moral standpoint? And I think his point was, you know, be responsible with your freedom. You can walk around naked (laughs) in some places. You have the right to do that. But at what point did you cross the line? And I, I see that, you know, we see that's a lesson for us today. It's like you have, there are lots of thoughts that go through your mind. The, the question time. is, should you say all of them? And it was a personal, it was a, a very personal lesson for me because I would, like, I would, <laughs> I would say all sorts of things. <laughs> this is, of course, certainly before I became a professional journalist, but I would say all sorts of things. Not necessarily vulgar things, but, you know, whatever was on my mind, my friends would call it the filter, the non-filter button. And so I've tried to be better at filtering because, you know, I'm trying to utilize responsibility in my expression. So the second personal truth is we we, we rarely get two personal truths, but this is fantastic. <laughs> the second personal truth is respect freedom. I think that's huge. Respect and be responsible with the freedoms that you have. Yes. All right. Let's go to the professional. Okay, truth. here Let's we go. go. To professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, this you got your first job at 22. One, yes. All the way up through, you know, working now at your age 23. Well, I've been working since I was in college. Yes. 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 <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's funny. I remember this guy asked you. Why do you guys talk like that? You know, you know, know, that voice that that, I am a journalist and I must enunciate each and every vowel and word as I speak. Well, you know, because back then, you know, (laughs) back when broadcast journalism was formed, it was like you wanted to listen to someone who you felt and generally generally it was over the radio. Right. Right. So respect had you couldn't see it, but you had to hear it. And so you had to sound educated. Right. So, you know, so often, so often, I think we as human beings in our quest for success. It rhymes. Oh, I didn't notice. (laughs) In our quest for success, we're burdened by this notion that we can't fail, that we shouldn't make mistakes. And unfortunately, that you're going to fail and you're going to make mistakes. You just hope that you do it 
at a point in time in which you can learn from them. And then you can also have a comeback. I have a great saying, a setback is nothing but a setup for a comeback. That's right. And my big, big mistake and my big comeback followed a story that it was a breaking news story. I was working in Columbia, South Carolina at a great station. And that day, a woman called us and said that she was living next door to a child predator and the police were doing nothing about it. And so we went to go talk to her about, you know, this. And it was a, it was like we were, we, we should have never, number one, you, you first do no harm. You do not rush into a story like that and try and break it the same day. But we did. I was working with a young man who's a photographer. He was still in college. My executive producer had literally given notice. She got a big promotion somewhere else. So she was biding her time for greener pastures. And so it was a Saturday and we put the piece together. Now, it was interesting because I had seen a 60 Minutes piece where they shot an extreme close-up of someone's mouth talking instead of blocking out their face or darkening their face or altering their face in some way. So I said, oh, let's, let's shoot it like that. Let's shoot the mom like that. We shot the little girl on her bike as she was riding off and from the back. There were so many lessons I learned from that. First of all, we should have never talked to her at her home. We should have never shot the child outside of the home. There were, there were all these like, you know, like things that you learn. I learned from these things, right? So. Now, did you produce this piece or you were No, reporting? I was, I was, well, in that market, I was reporting was and reporting. producing. I, and every, producing. Okay. So, but the executive producer was in charge of the show. Got it. Right? And so, so she didn't really. So she wasn't really engaged right. in the story. So, yeah. so essentially what happened was literally I went to the bathroom. <laughs> like I said, I have, I, I had held it and I like, this is so funny. And I like it two minutes to air. I was like, let me just go. The piece is going to, it's going to run. Let me, let me run and then I'll run back and then I'll see. Well, what I didn't see was the headline. Now, I'm not in charge of the headline. I'm not responsible for the headline. But for some reason, the way the headline was edited, the little girl turned around and you saw her full full frontal facial. That signaled like the piece. And then the piece, the shot of a darkened shot of the apartment, you still knew it was that little girl's apartment. The super close up of the mother's mouth, you know, with the mole, the identifiable mole. <laughs> oh, no. Right. All of those things. So basically, we were in trouble. But I also knew that I was, <laughs> I needed to find a job and my contract was up too. So I'll never forget. In fact, it's funny. I, I got a, a text message or an email from the man that I went to go meet in New Orleans. He was the news director of the station I worked at there. And I'll never forget in the middle of dinner asking him, Have you ever made a really big mistake? It was like that moment of my truth. I don't know what I was trying to, like, why would I ask a potential employer? Because what does it signal? I made a really big mistake. I'm troubled by it. I'm trying to learn from it, right? Why would I expose myself like that? And he told me with tears in his eyes, and he turned to me and he said, have you? And I told him, without going into the details of it, I told him what had happened. The buck stops with me. I didn't follow through. I, you know, I let this happen. I let this happen. And we went on about our merry way. I went back to work the next day. And that morning, 
walked into my boss's office and I was fired. And it was really sweet because the HR person was in tears. And I'd only been there a year and a half, and yet she was really sad to see me go. So I, I felt like, hey, you know, when the HR director is like tearing up on you in the middle of your exit interview, you must have, at least you're a good person, right? I made friends all over that station. And I, I went back to one of my friends, Douglas Broadwater, who just was torn up about it. And he said, you know, Michelle, he said, a setback is nothing but a setup for a comeback. Don't you ever forget that. The boss who fired me really didn't think I had much of a future in journalism and, and told me that I should think about another profession. And so I left there with my, you know, I, the, he told me that as I told him what my boss had told me. And so I, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. The following week, the gentleman from New Orleans called to offer me the job. Couldn't find me. I was in Mexico because I had to get just out of town. My agent called me and said, you better call this guy. I called him. He said, what happened? I said, remember that story I told you? And he said, yes. I said, it happened last month. And although my contract was already going to be up, it happened at the, the time at, point at which you know, I really need a job. He said, okay, listen, you have a great time in Mexico. Call me when you get back. I called him when I got back. He said, you know, me and Mr. Early, Joe Duke, Joe Duke said, me and Mr. Early talked about it. Mr. Early was the 80-year-old general manager of the station. He said, and we figured she won't make that mistake again. <laughs> right. And we'd like to offer you the job. And I said, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. He said, I like that you have integrity. I like that it bothered you that the person that you could potentially be working for needed to know that you were damaged goods. I like that. I like that you see yourself as this growing you know, human being who, who makes mistakes and who wants to learn from. I like that. And you're real. From the moment you took your shoes off in my car, because your feet hurt, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> like, who does so that? Random. Who does that, right? The wild child does the that. The wild child does that. <laughs> Everything sort of happened for me in New Orleans. Did it. It really did. It's <laughs> like I had great colleagues. I had great supporters. That individual, Joe Duke, left about four months later. He was promoted up and eventually promoted out of the company that we were at. And 10 years later, I ended up in New York City. And he was here. He was here at CBS News. And he remembered, he remembered that girl, that young woman who had integrity, and he followed my career, and he came to my wedding. So he knew who I was, and he helped me get into CBS News. So to this day, I always thank him. And in fact, there's a picture of the four people that I received today a, an email for, because they happened to all be together last night. And it was this lovely thing. So this is, it's with Joe Duke, his wife, wife, Therese Duke, who was the executive producer of the morning show on that station. This is Marcy McGinnis, who was the vice president of CBS News, and John Frazee, who was over CBS Newspath at the time. 
I had a little gathering. Some friends had a gathering for me the other day. And she says, we missed your party, but we were thinking about you tonight and Nola hanging with the old team. Love you. Like, I feel so blessed that the people who had an impact on my life so many years ago are still in touch with me and are still like wishing me well. And I, I think that stems from the fact that, you know, I have a sense of, of integrity that allows me to see that I am fallible. I can still make mistakes, but by darn, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to keep going. Because what other choice do I have? I can't give up. I can't give up. And so that has followed me through my career at CBS News. You know, there have been many times where I've fallen, maybe not on the air, maybe a slip of the tongue off the air. <laughs> but, but you know, I recognize my mistakes. One of the people who I'll share this had words with, it was funny, came to my going away part, and my going away part, one of the individuals I... I remember I asked him this question that perhaps was an unfiltered question. I should have been better at asking who was my boss at the time, who I had gone through a great process and metamorphosis with. He came to my little gathering. He's like a, a super big shot now with a super big show. And he still felt moved that one, I invited him. I told him, I said, yeah, I learned, I learned from you. I learned from you. I learned that, you know what? No matter how much I disagree with, with people, I, I still need to give people respect and deference. And you forgave me. And you gave me another shot. You know what I'm saying? So I call it, you don't have to kiss someone's behind, but sometimes you need to kiss the ring. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's my mantra. Is that, is that your professional truth? That's one of them. Integrity, you know, being, being, being true to who you are and owning what you've done. And also, you know, knowing, you know, people always say it in these days, like the office, you respect the office, you respect, you give the office deference. And our, our journalists in many respects covering, you know, certain institutions at this point in time must still be deferential to the offices in which they cover, no matter what is happening around them. And so I guess, yes, yes. Say that, say that last one again about the kiss the ring. It was a good one. <laughs> I said, you, you don't mean, have to kiss some, at, you don't, oh, right. Ahead, you, can, you can, you can, I didn't say yeah, it though. You'd have to kiss, but, but you may have to kiss the ring. Yeah. Right. And there's right. nothing wrong with it. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, going back to your story, the reason that that works so well for you is because what is journalism about? It's about being transparent and truthful. Mm-hmm. And so I think that resonated with Joe Duke in that moment. That you weren't afraid. You know, that's the other thing. You weren't afraid. You were fearless. It takes a lot of gumption to tell a potential employer, listen, you know, I made a mistake and this is what it is. Plus, you rather tell him, this is something my dad used to, used to tell me. I, you know, <laughs> he's going to find he's out like, anyway. <laughs> better come home and tell me right away because if I have to hear from somebody else. There it you know? is. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great trait. It's a great trait. All right. Let's jump into some questions. Oh, Lordy. Here we go. Okay. You've interviewed everybody, you know, Bill Clinton, Oprah, Kerry Washington, Denzel, LL Cool J, you know, a lot of people. What makes a great interview and how do you prepare? Well, I try to read everything I can. 
I try to, it's funny how you don't know the connections you have to people, but sometimes you have connections to some of the people you interview. And if you don't personally have them, then you may know someone who may know someone. I, I remember on the Kerry Washington interview, I called a friend of mine who I thought may have known her. I know she knows a lot of people in the business. I called my roommate because I found out that her husband was a co-star on my roommate show, Wendy Raquel Robinson. Shout out to my girl. (laughs) Um, And it was funny. She was like, oh, I must not have been on set that day. So I actually haven't met him. But, you know, A lot of times you get nuggets, and one of my friends gave me this little nugget, not Wendy. It was another friend. And she told me that on Scandal, that Carrie wasn't, they weren't even considering a black woman, even though the person they based the story on, the the executives, like Shonda may have had it in her mind, Shonda Rhimes may have, but the executives really were like, oh, I don't know, even though the whole character was based on Judy Smith and her time in the Bush 41 White House. But the executives at ABC weren't so sure if a black woman could carry a a one-hour drama. And the last one-hour drama or the last drama on network television, primetime, wasn't Julia. It was was Get Christy Love. And it was a short-lived series. And that was the last time a woman had carried a show like that. And so think about that. That's like, what, almost 40 years ago. I think it was the early 70s. So I knew that, at least I said it in a way that kind of kept me safe. I said, you know, a little bird told me, (laughs) you know, black women may not have even been considered for this role. And I think she was, I think Carrie was really kind of taken aback by the question. (laughs) Because (laughs) the wild child rides again. (laughs) But I was like, how could, you know, Olivia Pope not have been Kerry Washington? I think anybody in America, white, black, red, brown, green, looking at that role and being a fan of that role, like, like, what you talking about? Right. Really? Willis. What are you talking about, Willis? Right. (laughs) So I think it was a way to sort of give pay some homage to to her and her her craft and her her brilliant portrayal. But, you know, you always want to have something like that. It was like when I interviewed Denzel Washington, I had nothing. I had nothing. Right. He keeps it close to the vest. Oh, my circle, gosh. Circles very nothing, close to the vest. Nothing. And it was certainly that was the time there were things I could have said that I didn't because I've met him several times before in all sorts of scenarios. And there's a great story that I will tell where we were. I was in L.A. living in Los Angeles. Um, and I didn't tell him the story until after the camera stopped, started rolling. But we were all at a pool party. We, I was, all of us were, dressed. we, he was, we, there was no, none of us were in, it was like a barbecue. It wasn't a pool party. It was a barbecue. And it was over the sister who was in Martin. She and her boyfriend at the time. Tashina the, Arnold? Not Tashina, but the other, the other. Oh, you're talking about Dwayne Martin's wife. Yes. So it was Dwayne Martin and his wife were hosting this party. I had to, me and go into the restroom, right? So I like was looking for the restroom in the house and it was just friends. Like I knew one of my boys from worked on their show. So that's how I got the invite. And so I'm standing at the door, my back's to the door and in walks Denzel. And 
I, I said to somebody, I said, excuse me, does anyone know where the restroom is? And is it okay if I go? And he walks up behind me, puts, he puts his arm around my, sh- my shoulder and he says, sister, if you have to go to the restroom, you just go to the restroom. You don't have to ask for permission. You go find that restroom. And I looked up and I couldn't believe it. I was a huge Denzel Washington fan. So I didn't want him to think I was like this groupie. groupie right. Groupie reporter. Right. Groupie reporter. <laughs> but you know what? That was the time I should, because in terms of breaking the ice with Denzel, I really needed to break some ice. And I didn't use my normal, like I wasn't me. Everyone said it. My producer said it. The young intern that I had come follow me over there, she said it. Like, my, my executive producer said it. He's like, Michelle, where, Michelle didn't show up. Where, where was Michelle? Because Michelle would have been like, Michelle, right? So, you know, it's like learning, like my, and I haven't really embraced it as much. It's like because I know that I really, I can't totally bring Michelle all the way there all the time. Because Michelle's a little bit much sometimes, (laughs) but not being afraid to be me, like finding that sweet spot for me, especially being a co-host now, is crucial. So my truth is finding the sweet spot. The sweet spot. So what makes a good interview for you is being a conversation, kind of like this one. You know, you started it off and you were just going to talk and talk Uh and talk. You're good at it, too. (laughs) But I just kind of your producer, Jenny, is like. Man, she started talking it like two seconds in. She didn't even wait to be introduced. But that's kind of hey, like I, I like it. I, I love because that's how we talk. Yeah, it's like exactly. how you engage, having a conversation, kind of knowing, you know, that okay. And and in the Carrie interview, these are my most recent. There was a question I didn't ask her. I mean, there was like so there was a moment where she revealed that she possibly, too, has many things that she could point to in the Me Too moment. But she she looked at me and she said, I see how your mind's working, but I'm not. That's all I'm going to say about that. And then I asked her, you know, what about I said, when are you going to tell us? And she said, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever tell. But the other question it was a subsequent question that my producer wanted me to ask about Harvey Weinstein. And it was it was in relation to his wife, who's a designer, and whether or not he, he sort of forced women to wear his wife's clothing. Interesting. And I chose not to ask the question. Yeah, I think it's a bad because question. Because I, I, I was just kind of like, I was like, that's going a little far. She's not going to expose, like, why? Why, why are we going to do that? It's trite. But, you know, we asked her off camera, you know what she said? It was so cute. She's like, nobody's going to tell Carrie what to wear. <laughs> Let me just say that. I was like, go ahead, go ahead on with your bad self, Gary. All right. That's great. This is a question I want you to answer for sort of all the career minded women that are out there like you. You know, you're busy. You have to prep during the week for for your show. You're on camera on the weekend. You you know, your husband has a you know, he's a president, CEO of the National Urban League. He travels. You have children. You know, how do you keep your relationship strong and connected? Because the relationship is important. Gosh, it's a constant, like, it's a constant struggle, right? Because we're pulled in all the, all these different directions and really keeping the relationship with our kids who are going through like their teenage years. My daughter is 12 and she's like discovering the, you know, that point in time where my friends are more fun than my parents, especially my friends are more fun than mom. So 
I'm always including her friends in our time together a lot and trying to establish, you know, things that we do together that aren't so grand, you know, because I'm kind of a grand. I want to do something grand. I want to do something big, you know, when it was like, oh, let's go to the Haunted Hollow and Sleepy Hollow and let's go. That's big because I'm thinking big is important, is better, right? Yeah. And... You know, it's funny because one of my favorite shows, and I'm a huge Shonda Rhimes fan. So, Shonda, if you're listening, I would love to sit down and have a conversation. Not an interview, a conversation with you. But that said, I'm a huge Grey's Anatomy fan. And so... We'll send her this interview, Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> make sure she gets it. <laughs> but all that, like, over with thir- 13 seasons, 14, 15 seasons, I can't remember. There's I, I, there so many. My daughter would never watch that shit with me. It's a little bit, you know. Well, lo and behold, this summer, she discovered Grey's Anatomy. On Netflix, probably. Wherever she did, and she she watched it back to back. What do you call that? Binge. I mean, binge, binge watched binge it, it over the summer. All 15 episodes. Oh, gosh. So she's hooked, right? <laughs> and... It's like, so she tapes it. And so when I come home, because I usually miss the first 20 minutes of it, we wait and then we go and we watch it. (laughs) And she, so here's my, this is my ode to Shonda. So, you know, I come from, I'm the daughter of a surgeon. My husband is the grandson of a physician. And my daughter, who has never, ever remotely talked about medicine or science at all thanks to Grey's Anatomy she's like you know what I'm thinking I want to be a doctor and I said what and this this is before I realized she was a Grey's fan and I said why where did where's this coming from and she said I've been watching Grey's Anatomy and and you know what based on everything that they're doing and all the people they're helping and the issues that are coming up I think that's that's how I can contribute and I was like, Shonda Rhimes, thank you. Thank you so much. So that's our like moment. That's like our little hour together during the week. And it's special. Like we, we're in bed together, especially when daddy's not there. We're all <laughs> snuggled up in bed. But, you know, it's really finding those moments. And like, so Mark and I, like our relationship is built on our mutual interest with respect to I really do feel like we have a real sense that we have got to better our community, right? Like it's like deep rooted, like my, like knowledge to me is really important. And so the more I think people know the contributions of the various communities that make up America, because we've been so many people slander people of color. They slander women many times. They slander, you know, particular points of view when it comes to religion. Like, people want to slander things. Like, they want to say bad things about people, dehumanize people. Like, the people out there who I think contribute to this really awful negative public discourse. And so I think if they knew what all of these groups have contributed to America and have since the beginning and dawn of this nation, I think they would have a greater appreciation. Now, they can say it's fake news all they want, you know, but it is my job. Part of my job is to, like, educate and inform people and and inform myself because half the time I, I don't know these ways. I did a piece on this amazing attorney. 
in the 1930s, a woman by the name of Eunice Carter. That brought down the mafia boss. Yes. Who knew that? Yeah. Yeah, The one woman and the one person of color on a team of 20 who a guy relied on and used to do Thomas Dewey almost won the presidency based on, you know, his support against Truman ultimately didn't. But imagine he would he would stump out there on civil rights and and the rights of, you know, all Americans. And Eunice was one of his, you know, local lieutenants and he would talk about her. But yeah, she was smart because she was given, this is what I learned from Eunice. She was given the bottom of the barrel to go and investigate. Everybody else in that mob investigation was given murder, kidnapping, money laundering, racketeering, and she was given prostitution, which they absolutely did not think had any link to organized crime. And that's the only thing they were able to convict Lucky Luciano on. And so I say like, so like, so both of us, so back to Mark, Mark and I have like this, we're always talking about things that we're talking about our people. And we're talking about, we talk about news of the day and we talk like those things. And how, how do we, you know, how do we as human beings, like, you know, educate those around us to what needs to be done to help people really? Cause That's what it's about. You want to help people, right? And his work, the National Urban League doesn't just help black people. It's the National Urban League. If you come to an urban league center, no matter what you look like, no matter what you sound like, you're going to get help. And you say, I need help. You're going to get help. And I'm not like broadcasting to any one group. You know, one of my favorite stories, very few people. And I learned a great lesson about it. I was in Ferguson and I happened to see a flyer. It said witnessing whiteness. And I was like, what is that about? And the the woman at the United Way told me, she's that's a group of people who meet twice a month and they talk about white privilege and racism. And they're trying to educate themselves, you know, about all of this. And I said, wow, can I go in and and can I meet with them? Can I can I shoot this? She got permission. And I was talking to this 70 year old man. There were people there from all walks of life. I said, one, why do you only open this up to white people? He said, because we don't know what we don't know. We don't want to offend anyone in our questioning, in our ignorance. And we want to feel safe to ask these questions so we can be better educated. And I said, well, two, I said, what kind of difference do you think you can make? You know, he said, oh, I can make all the difference. He said, because my Uncle Tom... And my cousin Larry, he said, they're not going to listen to a Barack Obama or a Jesse Jackson or any one of a number of other people who look a certain way or sound a certain way. But I'm their cousin and I can penetrate. And so he said, you know, he said, I think Chris Rock's, and he said that, I said, man, this, this, <laughs> this guy's down. He was like, he said, I think Chris Rock said, he said, you know, racism is not a black person's problem. Racism. This is a white man, six, 70 year old white man. He said, racism is a white person's problem. And as a white person, it is up to me to help solve it. Every day with this, the beauty of my job is that I learn every single day something new, something I need to know, and something that could potentially make a huge difference in the lives of the people I'm reaching. 
And I think that's the commonality. That's the strength of my union with my husband. It really is. Beautiful. Okay. You were talking about how you were, you were in, this is back, going back to this, the, your pilgrimage. You were in Tuscany. I oh, I didn't Tuscany. even tell you that story, did I? You didn't tell me, but I, I know a little bit about it. How do you know this? You gave a talk to Stony Brook University. It was about an hour and a half talk, 2012. Too long. I was talking too long. <laughs> 2012, but you mentioned this. But you talked about you woke up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and you were in tears. You were bawling. You woke up because you, you said to yourself, will I ever be able to feel this alive again? And so my question is, have you? And if you have, how so? Well, I was traveling with the beautiful thing about traveling alone is that you meet so many people and you open yourself up to. I, fortunately, I was blessed to have met some incredible people. And the two people I was traveling with in Italy were two Australians from Adelaide. I'm saying that so mm-hmm. Jenny knows. <laughs> and Fiona Fagan, who I'm still in touch with this day, I woke up and 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 she was like, Michelle, what's wrong? And I was like, I feel so alive. And I know when I go back home, I'm going to lose it. And I knew that the routine of what we do every day and the planned life we live, there's something about knowing what your day will bring that takes away from that thrill of living. It's the sweet spot of life, right? It's, it's the adventure you're always looking for. That's probably one of the reasons why I love my job so much is that every day is, is something unexpected can happen. Every day is different. The unexpected can oftentimes be awful, but I, I try not to, I don't know, maybe I'm an eternal optimist. I'm, I'm never looking at it as always being negative, but just the fact that the day will bring something new or the, the day will teach me something or I just don't know how it's going to end is thrilling. Now, I haven't felt the way I felt when every day for about f- four or five months, I was like, I really didn't know where I was staying. I didn't know <laughs> what I was eating. I didn't know where I was walking. I was that that's a whole different. That's what people do. That's a sojourn. Yeah, I haven't felt that way. And maybe one day I can go back and really live in the land and live in the in new places. But this is pretty good. Where I'm at's pretty darn good. Okay. Indeed. All right, let's jump into yes or BS. You ready? Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number one. <laughs> I actually need to get a little, little sound effect. <laughs> a little button I can press. Being a parent has made you a better wife. Has made me a better wife? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. It's like one or the other. Yes or BS? Well, you can you can use Jeannie. Jeannie says okay. yes. Yes is BS. That's her way of saying it's in the middle. Yeah. Or you can say pass. I'll pass. Okay. <laughs> that's a that's a truth prescription first. Number two. <laughs> Journalism twenty years ago had a different professional connotation. What do you mean? How journalists were perceived or viewed twenty years ago is different than, oh, than, yes, than now. Definitely. Definitely. I doubt I would be on television, a network, 20 years ago. I really do. Being who I am, and not necessarily the color I am or my hair, or my, but what I bring to television wasn't necessarily, I think, 
at the network level. I don't, I don't, I mean, the close, like Jane Pauley, you saw spurts of that in her and Meredith Vieira and certainly Oprah, but she wasn't, her forte wasn't hard news. Her forte was something else, but yes. The reason I asked the question is because you think about, you know, somebody like Walter Cronkite, right? Who's Mm kind of like the, you know, epitome of journalism, quote unquote. Um, And then fast forward now you have, you know, a kid on his, you know, on his blog calling himself right, a journalist. Right. So like, well, that's a whole different thing. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily like there's this, this word called citizen journalist. And, you know, I can say I will call you, know, you're, you're a citizen responder, but journalism responder. is like, I'm sorry. Like it's a profession. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious because I'm sorry. My profession, you have got to know. You know, you got to know what we do. And it's, it's, yes, it, part of it is reporting, but like how you report and, and, and like what, what you take as fact and, you know, doing your homework and making sure that you have all so eyes, sourcing your sources. Right. All your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed and knowing like when, you know, there's an angle or when there's a, when there's a bias or no. And, you know, we're always combating that always, always and checking ourselves and filtering the, the BS from the truth. Okay. Number three, New Orleans has more culture than New York. Oh, wow. I would. Okay. Initially I have to say yes, because first of all, there are all these like caveats to that, like more culture versus, cause it's like, a big culture. And there are all these little facets to the big culture of New Orleans. It has an identifiable culture, right? That a lot of people, I don't want to say appropriate, but a lot of people take part of, right? And New York City has many cultures. So, you know, it's different. You know, a lot of people know New York City, like New York City were the size of New Orleans. I don't think many people would know New York City all around the world. New Orleans is less than 500,000 people. Okay. And you can go to Muchacos, Kenya. You can go to Anchor Wat. You can go, I'm, I'm picking various countries and they, you say, I'm from New Orleans. And they're like, oh, New Orleans, jazz, Louis Armstrong, right? Gumbo. And in fact, it was funny. I was watching this movie. Oh, what movie was it? And the woman says, where are you from? And he says, New Orleans, Louisiana. He says, New Orleans, Louisiana. And she said, is there any other? It was uh, (laughs) the curious case of Benjamin Button. Okay. Right. Right, And so the actress asked Brad Pitt and he says, you know, (laughs) she's like, wait, nobody knows of Louisiana. They know New Orleans. And so I fear maybe some of my New York friends would, for its sheer size, New Orleans is hugely on the map. Jazz, the first true American art form, everyone knows, came from New Orleans. Like the cuisine, people all over the world. You know, they, there's, they're, they're like restaurants. There are New Orleans restaurants in places like Osaka, Japan. There's a Louis Armstrong Club in Nice, France. You know, I'm just saying that New York City is a place where people from all over the world came and deposited their cultures. That's what makes New York so unique is that it is a repository of many cultures. But New Orleans birthed 
one of America's true, like, distinguished cultures? So the answer is yes. That would be yes. Number four. This is a quote. Life's chief masterpiece is writing well. <laughs> you are bad. You went to my, my college yearbook for that one. No, no, no. No, that is, oh my gosh. That's John Sheffield. He was a 17th or 18th century writer, English writer. And I discovered that quote. There was a substitute teacher who would write quotes on the board, on the chalkboard every day. And that was one that just stuck with me. The whole quote is, of all the arts in which the wise excel, life's chief masterpiece is writing well. And that became my mantra. It did. So what's the question? Well, you answered it. Yes, you agree with it. (laughs) Number five. I just went, I thought it was a fantastic quote. I love it. Thank you. Because I love writing as well. All right. Number five. Mm -hmm. Michelle Miller. Yes. Will hold public office. No. <laughs> BS. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you do know my dad was political office holder. Yes, he ran for mayor. No, actually, he was a city councilman and a school board member. He ran for the state senate. State senate. Okay. Yes, yes. I thought that I In saw California. This, this brochure with him shaking Robert Kennedy's hand and it said... Miller for mayor. I thought in my mind, maybe. Okay, well, maybe he did. I don't maybe. recall that. Maybe he did. Yeah. You're telling he me something win, I didn't know. He did not win. I know that for a fact. Yeah, but it, it said like, you know, something like the quote was like leadership along the lines of the Kennedys or something like that. I got to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you. Can I tell you what yeah. was crazy? When I worked at the LA Times, the reporter who covered my father in Compton, California, walked up to me with the article that he wrote on my dad about some office he was running for. And I thought that was crazy. He would know I was this guy's daughter. And everything that he talked about was actually the platform that my husband had run on in New Orleans. Like, it's down to the letter. So what it tells you is that we really, the needs are still the needs. The needs are still the needs. All right. Last one. Number six. Yes, sir. Interviewing is a gift, not a skill. I think it's both. I think it's both. That would be a yes. Yes, it's yes. Yes. Thanks, Janie. (laughs) <laughs> i mean you can have a natural gift for it but you know you can you can learn technique there is i i think i have a natural gift for it and i need to i need to hone my technique better i could be a much better interviewer if i if i learn to if i study more on some of the skills and i've been given some some great little suggestions little, feed, little feedback some feedback all right well michelle this was amazing. Thank oh, thank you. So you. Much. I have a yes or BS. Okay, go ahead. You uh, from one for me. Michelle Miller was my favorite interview. <laughs> Hell yes. It's hilarious. Hilarious. Michelle, your dad had this poem he would used to tell you, and it ended with never give up. And I think the people listening to this podcast can definitely glean the essence of that in your in your spirit. So Keep going, keep moving forward, keep honoring his legacy. It's it's fantastic and it's very important. Tell the people where they can, you know, follow you, reach you, where they can see you. Oh, I'm an Instagrammer. So I'm Michelle Miller 29 on Instagram. I'm CBSM Miller. I wish I had chosen a better <laughs> handle. I mean, it gives great homage to my workplace, but and then on Facebook, I unfortunately I have several Facebook pages. 
you know, they, so it's Michelle Miller, Michelle Miller and Michelle Miller. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Got it. On all platforms. Fantastic. Uh, Thank you, Michelle. Anything you want to say before we sign off? This has been off? so much fun. Hopefully I didn't say anything that was too controversial and people will <laughs> forgive me for, you know, just, you know, being real. I, I, I hope people understand that, you know, I too am a person. And I, too, have a perspective. I just, you know, I know what work is. I know what I need to do on my job. But truth sometimes is not neutral. Well, truth is never truthful. There's only one truth. No, truth is not neutral. No, it's not. Truth is what it is. It is. Right. Exactly. Truth is what it is. People may see it a different way, but (laughs) truth is what it is. Actually, my my interview last last week was with David Nagel. He said something that that I really like, which was like, "Truth is like the middle of town. You can get there from all different directions. That's right, but it don't move. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. It's in one place. So, Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. As I always say, the truth will set you free if you let it.